Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Holly Fry, welcome to the podcast. So in our previous episode, we talked about the Great Emu War, and something came up in that episode which comes up pretty often if you are reading about Australia, particularly if you are reading about the state of Western Australia. It's the rabbit-proof fence, which I had known nothing about before we got into that one. No, I feel like it keeps coming up when I'm reading things about Australia. There's also a film I have seen called Rabbit-Proof Fence. That came out in 2002. It's about some young girls who were part of the stolen generation of the 30s who follow the rabbit-proof fence home to get back to where they came from in Jigalong. It's based on the book Followed the Rabbit-Proof Fence, uh, and the score in the film is by Peter Gabriel. I like it quite a lot. I have not seen the film, but I will make a point to you. Yes, it is uh, a little slight digression, but... Every time this rabbit-proof fence comes up, I go, okay, obviously, there are lots of rabbits in Australia. Somebody put up a big fence. What's really going on with this fence? And so that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Yeah. Uh, and first, we have to kind of start with how rabbits got introduced right. to the environment. Uh, and the earliest European settlers to Australia, as most people know, were convicts and their keepers. But by the mid-1800s, more affluent English people were starting to settle there as well. They, A lot of them brought animals and plants from home with them to try to make Australia feel more like England. These people were known as acclimatizers. There were acclimatization societies, including the Victorian Acclimatization Society, which was founded in 1861 by Edward Wilson, So really what they were after was to try to make Australia, which does not feel like England in most places, feel more like England. Yeah. It was their own weird version of terraforming. Right. To try to turn it somehow into an English countryside. In a lot of ways, this was deeply unsuccessful and damaging, with this being one example. Uh, Enter Thomas Austin. He was born in Somerset, England, and his uncle James was a convict settler who had been sent to Hobart Town, Tasmania. Uh, James Austin died before Thomas and his family got to Tasmania in 1831, but they all got money in his will. And many of the family actually returned to England, but Thomas and his brother decided, uh, whose name was James, decided that they were going to stay down under and make a go of it. In 1837, Thomas and James moved to what would later become Victoria. Thomas established the estate of Barwon Park, which was a 42-room mansion eventually. He didn't build that right off the bat, but eventually there was a 42-room mansion there. It was surrounded by 29,000 acres of stocked grounds. Uh, He farmed sheep and raised and trained horses, among other things, on all of this land. And he also really wanted some rabbits. And he had married Elizabeth Phillips Harding in Melbourne on August 14th of 1845. And together they had 11 children, eight of whom survived to adulthood. And he also is one of the people who introduced sparrows to Australia, uh, which also later became pests. Yes. So here we have Thomas, his family, his wife, living on this estate together, really wanting to introduce rabbits. Uh There was a demand. They weren't the only people who were of this mindset. There was a demand for rabbits in Australia. Early acclimatizers had brought domesticated rabbits, which did okay when people were looking after them. 
But if they managed to escape into the Australian wilderness, they usually did not manage to survive really well. Sometimes they would manage to uh, establish a little colony, get kind of a foothold, but they didn't run rampant anywhere. They did a little better in Tasmania and some of the other smaller islands around the main Australian continent. Uh, But in general, domesticated rabbits were not doing so well. No. Uh, And Thomas actually asked his nephew, William Mack, to bring him some wild rabbits in an effort to kind of bolster the population. And William brought 24 rabbits on the Clipper Lightning in December of 1859. Eighteen of those rabbits were feral, and they had just been trapped and held in an enclosed warren. They weren't domesticated. They weren't accustomed to interacting with humans at all. Thomas, in an act he became quite notorious for doing, set 13 of the rabbits free. He kept 11 of them in fenced enclosures on his property, and they multiplied, as rabbits do. Uh, Three years later, a flood destroyed part of his fence, and so some of those now huge population of rabbits uh, escaped into the Australian territory, which caused an explosion of rabbit population. Yes. By 1867, rabbits were really everywhere, and Thomas would have rabbit hunting parties at his estate. Prince Alfred, the Duke of Edinburgh, went on a hunting day in Barwon Park that year, and he shot 416 rabbits in three and a half hours. He reportedly had to have attendants on hand to hand him new guns when the one he was using got too hot because he was shooting too fast for his guns to cool down between shots. By 1869, the infestation of rabbits was causing property values in some areas to plummet. And the rabbits themselves, we should point out, were not the only ones to blame. Farmers were actually clearing woodland and making it a much more hospitable environment for the rabbits to thrive in. Their introduction was in Victoria on the coast in the far southeast of Australia. And they spread north and west from there. By the 1880s, the government had started offering bounties on dead rabbits because there were so many of them. And by 1900, rabbits were in all or part of every Australian state. They were the biggest nuisance outside of the tropical areas. And so this was less than 40 years after they were introduced to Australia. They were in every state of Australia. It's a big continent. It is. That's a pretty explosive population growth for any animal. Uh, in less than four decades to completely engulf a continent is pretty uh, amazing. Right. The rabbits became prey for other introduced species like wild cats, wild dogs, foxes, and dingoes. All of these except for dingoes were introduced after the landing of the first fleet, which was the 11 ships that reached Australia from Great Britain in 1788. A lot of people think of dingoes as being native to Australia, But they really arrived to Australia when humans did about 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. So whether to call dingoes native is a subject of debate. Yeah. Uh, And in addition to the basic nuisance factor that was going on and the fact that the rabbits were crowding out native species, they could also completely strip an area of anything they would eat. Uh, That includes food crops that were intended for people, as well as crops that were intended to support the raising of other animals. So this also led not only to things going without food, but also really bad erosion issues. Right. You can find pictures sometimes of really well-maintained rabbit fences. And on one side of the fence will be completely stripped of all vegetation. And on the other side, there will be healthy grass growing. 
So it's it's a dramatic difference of rabbits versus no rabbits. They're extremely thorough in finding every consumable element in an environment. Yes. And then uh, the great idea happened to yeah. build a fence to help with this problem. Yeah. By the 1880s, people were building fences on their own in an attempt in an attempt to keep rabbits out of their property. Often this was not effective at all because there were already rabbits on both sides of the fence. And also rabbits like to burrow under things. And so even if there had not been rabbits on both sides of the fence, the rabbits would just dig a hole underneath and come up on the other side. So eventually uh, construction was begun on what what became the state barrier fence. And that happened from 1901 to 1907. And this followed a five-month investigation by Arthur Mason, which started in 1896, and a royal commission in 1901. So private contractors did the work on the state barrier fence and then handed it over to the Public Works Department in 1904. The fence itself, when it was originally being built, was made of wooden posts, wire, and wire netting, with gates every 34 kilometers, which is about 20 miles, and traps to try to catch rabbits that did manage to burrow under it. Usually the crews were cutting timber from the surrounding trees to make the posts, and if there weren't any trees, they would use metal posts instead. Um, The netting for the fence also extends underground to try to prevent burrowing from underneath it. Yeah. Uh, And they would coat the bottom part of the fence in the hope of keeping it from rusting out. So the number one fence runs from north to south, roughly through the middle of Western Australia, The number three fence stretches out east to west about midway down the number one fence. And the number two fence stretches north to south, dividing the zone created by the number one and number three fences roughly in half. Yes. So basically there's a fence running the entire height of Australia from north to south all the way down. Um, The reason that there are three of them is because as they were building, rabbits kept getting ahead of the fence. And so they were sort of further subdividing to try to keep the rabbits contained. What they wound up with was 3,256 kilometers, which is 2,023 miles of fence, which cost more than 300,000 pounds at the time. Uh, Like we said in the last episode, Australia was not on the dollar for money at the time. So it's a little hard to compare what that would amount to in today's money. Uh, And the fences fell under the jurisdiction of, I love this title, the first chief inspector of rabbits, whose name was Alexander Crawford, uh, at their completion in 1907. He took over as chief inspector of rabbits, which is just the best thing to put on the a best business title. card of all time. Right. The, it, just building the fence was not enough. They were going to then have to inspect the fence constantly to make sure that it didn't get damaged or burrowed under. People would travel the length of the fence using bicycles, horses, and camels to look for breaches. And there were huts set up periodically along the way that people could stay in while they were doing this inspection. Once motor vehicles became more common, people did start using them to inspect the fence. But really, in the beginning, it was bicycles, horses, camels, or on foot, which is a lot of fence to try to just inspect. It is. And they're... uh were not always areas that motor vehicles could even reach, so they had to retain some of those slower methods for the um, those areas that just couldn't be um, arrived at by car. Right. And there were other anti-rabbit fences constructed elsewhere in Australia. This, these three were not the only ones. 
No, there's there's the dog fence, which goes, it's very meandering, but it's in a roughly east-west direction through South Australia, then along the South Australia, Australia, Queensland, New South Wales border, through Queensland and almost to the coast. It keeps dingoes on one side of the fence and was put up when dingo attacks were happening so frequently that it had become basically impossible to raise sheep. Um, also, in addition to there being multiple other sort of vermin-excluding fences is the broad category they fall into. The state barrier fence also uh, deters other animals than rabbits, such as emus, as we talked about in the previous episode. Now, the thing is that all of these these fences remain a little controversial um, as to whether or not they really work, whether their impact on the biodiversity of the areas outweighs um, the benefit of containing vermin, and so it, it's while they are doing their jobs in many cases, some people question their validity as a maintained entity. Like, are we wasting our time and money on this? Right. Uh, but the Department of Agriculture and Food uh, in 2001 decided that the fence was now main, would now be maintained by the Department of Agriculture, the Agriculture Protection Board, the State Barrier Fence Advisory Committee, local shires and state holders. So roughly every year, the fence is uh, has about 30 to 35 kilometers that need replacing. And new sections have steel posts and more modern prefabricated netting. Right. So it's a fence that's still there, still being maintained, still attempting to, to do the job of keeping rabbits on one side and not on the other side, or at least fewer rabbits on one side than on the other side. Uh, and rabbits are still a nuisance. Um, right now, there, there's a similarly controversial attempt to introduce diseases into rabbit populations to try to curb their spread. And there, there are lots of layers of the reasons why that can be problematic or upsetting to some people. But th- that is one of the things that's being done in an attempt to keep the rabbit population from completely overrunning the rest of Australia. So one important legacy to look at is that of the man who brought rabbits to Australia. Thomas really started to take the blame for the rabbit infestation pretty early on. He was probably not the only person to bring rabbits that eventually did multiply. Uh, that That's sort of unlikely. But he was really boastful about what he was doing. He frequently gave breeding pairs to people as gifts. Uh So while it's probably not true that the entire population of rabbits in Australia now is the fault of this one guy, he he was kind of taking the hit. He yeah, he he bragged about his rabbits a lot and and he made a name for himself that way. Uh, He died on December 15th, 1871, which was six months after their mansion was finished. His widow eventually used her money to open a hospital for what they called incurables in 1882, and she opened a children's ward in 1898. So they went on to have kind of a legacy in Australia, apart from bringing rabbits to destroy us all. The negative rabbit image is not the only thing that his family left behind, which is good. Yeah. And it's also good to recognize that while he's getting all the flack, probably there were many other rabbit people who just did not make quite the name for themselves that he did. Yeah, he was not the only person that wanted to turn Australia into England. No. So it's it's very likely that plenty of other people were bringing in rabbits as well as other species. Right, and that's the thing that you'll see in other English colonies, an attempt to make other places that are absolutely not England more like, like England. England. It's a 
it's a it's sort of a colonial tradition and is absolutely problematic, but is a thing that definitely contributed in a long-lasting way to a lot of parts of the world, yes. uh, for good or for ill. And that's the story of the rabbit fence. Now we know. Do you also have some listener mail for I us? I do. Today's listener mail is a listener postcard. It shows on the front a very lovely picture of uh, a coastline, like a hilly coastline with a village at the bottom of it. Um, it is the village of Actuan, which is a native Alaskan village in the Aleutian Islands. Less than 100 people live there, written on the postcard. Less than 100 people live there, along with a fish processing plant. Uh, Sarah, who wrote this to us, says, I travel to remote Alaskan villages such as Ektuin by float plane, small planes, and boats to do eye exams. I work in the public health service, so it keeps us very busy traveling to the villages with all of the eye equipment, 300 pounds, and doing eye exams. I always bring you with me to put on speaker during my hikes to keep the bears away. That's the best use of our podcast. (laughs) I love hearing about people who are using the podcast to sort of do tasks that they don't like to do, but scaring bears away is a new and awesome one. Spectacular. So to return to Sarah's postcard, thanks for keeping me entertained and safe. More Native American and Alaskan stories would be great. Sarah, thank you so much, Sarah, for this postcard. I love hearing about your hiking and your bears and your eye exams. Stay safe. Yes, please do. If you would like to write to us, you may at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. We've just started up a Tumblr, which is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest. It's everywhere. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, go to our website and type in the word invasive species in the search bar, and you will find five invasive species that might conquer the world. Spoiler, one of them is rabbits. You can learn about all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Jack Threads.